church. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew 26. And I'll depart from the series on the Sermon on the Mount as we talk about Christ's resignation in Gethsemane. And we're not talking about turning in a piece of paper to quit something. When I say resignation, I think you'll know what I mean. Matthew chapter 26, and then if you'll keep your finger there, we're going to look at one verse in the great high priestly prayer of our Savior as recorded in John chapter 17. John 17, 24, after we've read Matthew 26, 36 through 46. While you're turning there, may I just say to set our thoughts in motion, to get our minds in gear, that if we emphasize Calvary to the neglect of Gethsemane, we do greatly err, okay? We need both. The word Gethsemane is so graphic. It's so important. You've heard me say this, some of you, before. And if you've ever gone to the Holy Land and had a guide to talk about the olive press, you've heard it said there. The word Gethsemane means olive press. And you know what happens in an olive press? The oil, it's so valuable for so many things. Olive oil is squeezed out of the olive. And it was in the shade of these gnarled olive trees in the garden on the other side of the brook Kidron that the God-man was pressed out of measure. And as he was squeezed, he literally sweat blood. In rare instances, it's a medical phenomenon known to man. He was crushed by what? By the overwhelming mass of the cumulative sins of millennia of men, including yours and including mine. We must talk about Gethsemane. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. And so we read in verse 36 of Matthew 26, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, we know those to be James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and, and very heavy. Would you underscore that word heavy? I'm going to tell you what it means in a few minutes. You might be surprised. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further. Jesus always goes a little bit further than we do, doesn't he, in prayer and suffering. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Very similar words. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. 
Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Poignant scene, moving words. In a very real sense, only two men ever lived. The first Adam and the last. The last being the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. If you want a fascinating study, just compare those two. The very rejection, the first rejection of God's revealed will occurred in a garden, another garden, the Garden of Eden. There Adam, the first Adam, broke God's law and ate the forbidden fruit. It would be thousands of years later, millennia later, that the last Adam, as he's described in 1 Corinthians 15 by the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ struggled to obey in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. I ask you, what was it that gave Jesus the strength and the victory in that garden? To be able to go through with the painful work of redemption for sinners on the cross. Usually we answer by saying, well, it was His great love for us, and I don't want to minimize that at all. And John 3.16 comes to mind right away, doesn't it? I mean, we sang about it at the beginning of the service. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But do you notice it said God? It didn't say Christ there. God so loved the world. What was it that gave Christ the strength and the victory? Was it just His great love for them? I think it's deeper than that. It was the resolution out of love for His Father. To submit to the Father's will. And I say without any hesitation, and I hope you'll not forget this, the real crisis in Jesus' mind and heart took place in Gethsemane, not Calvary. In our two previous meditations, just before the observance of the Lord's table over the last, I think it was two months ago before I, since I last spoke on this, we talked about two things. I'll just briefly review so you'll see the place of this meditation on His resignation in Gethsemane. We spoke first of all a few months ago about Christ's agony in Gethsemane. Jesus suffered here in a horrific, excruciating way. And we talked about the reason for it. Was it that He was attacked by Satan? Well, He was attacked by Satan. I'm sure Satan was in the shades of that garden. But He had already defeated the devil in the wilderness, right? At the beginning of his ministry, was he afraid of physical death? No, I don't think that was adequate cause for his suffering here either. He knew that he was going to die. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what would befall him there. The only adequate explanation for Christ's awful agony in the Garden of Gethsemane is this. Are you listening? For the first time, he realized that he was about to bear the curse due to sinners. The awful weight of it, the awfulness of it, came in force upon his mind and heart. The Father's wrath 
against sin was going to be fully vented on him. And his holy soul shrank in revolting horror from such a prospect. And then we looked at his loneliness in Gethsemane. Maybe some of you here today are lonely. You, you live by yourself. You've lost a spouse. You've lost siblings. You've lost dear friends. Jesus knows what you're experiencing. Jesus knew what loneliness was. Eventually all of his disciples, those closest to him, forsook him and fled. Just as the prophet Jeremiah had said, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And even that inner circle of three, the triumvirate of Peter, James, and John, that were with him on such special occasions, they couldn't keep from sleeping here. They were exhausted. They were mentally and emotionally drained. and They went to sleep. Oh, it doesn't mean that they forgot him. They would watch him from afar to the very end. They, they kept together even after he died. They united to bury him. They instinctively came together on the first day of the week when he was raised from the dead, not even knowing that he was raised to begin with. It was just that they were taken by surprise like a flock of sheep they fled from the wolf. Again, I said, don't be too hard on them. They've been through a lot. And we don't know what we would have done under the same provocation. In fact, Jesus had said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, ye know not what manner of spirit we are of. Be careful that you don't say, well, I have my faults, but one of them is not this. I would never stoop to do that. You don't know what you would do under the right provocation. But flee? Yes, they all did. And it was said of Jesus by Isaiah the prophet hundreds of years before, typifying our Lord, chapter 63, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. The winepress, we talked about the olive press, but the winepress, the wrath of God. Jesus endured it alone. It was just as the Father willed. May I remind you, no one else could have trodden that wine press, and no one else was willing to pay the price. You say, what was the price? Separation from God. Did you know sin is a very separating thing? And so Christ was made the sin bearer. And when he was made the sin bearer, even his friends had to leave him. They could not go where he went. Alone, he had to take the full brunt of the awful wrath of a holy God. And yet, in his humanity, and I emphasize in his humanity, Jesus craved the sympathy and fellowship of his own. In fact, Paul said later to the Colossians that it, it falls to us to fill up or to complete that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's a staggering thought. He, Jesus craved their sympathy, their fellowship. How sad it was to him that they would desert him. And there is a sense in which 
Though we cannot go where he went in suffering, he craves our sympathy now. He still needs us to suffer with him. And those words, what could ye not watch with me one hour, ought to pierce our heart. Can we not hear those pathetic tones? Do they not convict us? The loneliness of Christ. What a thought. But today I hasten to bring you the thrust of the message, and that is the third matter in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is the resignation of Christ's will. It's interesting that here in the passage we just read in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, no less than three times we read that Jesus went back to the Father and prayed, and he said essentially the same words. It was the same touching prayer with a little variation. O oh, my Father, if it be possible, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Isn't it interesting that even Jesus is pattern in prayer for us. I think sometimes we have the wrong idea about prayer. Somebody prays a beautiful flowery prayer and we mention it to somebody else. Jesus didn't pray a beautiful flowery prayer. He prayed a few words. They were probably broken. He paused he went back to his disciples. He came and prayed them again. He paused again. He came and prayed them again. Let's just get self-consciousness and man-consciousness out of our minds when we pray. The greatest prayer warriors I've ever read anything about did the same thing. The man we know is John Praying Hyde, the great missionary to India, labored for 20 years there and broken in health, had to come home, didn't live much longer, died of a brain tumor. But the things that God used him to accomplish through his prayer life is staggering. And the great evangelist J. Wilbur Chapman heard John Hyde pray, and he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He would pray a few words, he would stop, and there would be a long pause. It would be awkward, so awkward we'd be embarrassed. And then he'd pray again, and then there would be a long pause, and he'd be so awkward embarrassed again. Then he prayed again the same words. And when he finally knew that he had the ear in the presence of God, there would be such a torrent of petitions that came out of his mouth that J. Wilbur Chapman said, I never heard anybody pray like that in my life. Learn of Jesus Christ to pray. In Christ's resignation to the Father's will in Gethsemane, we find several profound lessons about resignation to the will of God in our own lives. I hope this will help us. I want to be practical today. I hope it will sanctify our minds as we take of the Lord's uh, table together. And of course, we won't be observing the elements that are under the lids there. We, since COVID, we take the disposable elements, but we will be observing the Lord's table and we give you a little visual reminder here. Several lessons and then We'll get into the observance. Number one, there are some things concerning which we do not know God's will, okay? That's clear from Scripture. Why was it that just a few minutes before Jesus had prayed, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am? Actually, that's exactly what happened. John, the words in John 17, verse 24, and I 
We, we didn't go there, but I would like you to see them now, this, the companion text, John 17, verse 24. As Jesus comes to the end of His high priestly prayer, the true Lord's prayer, one of the few things He asks for, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am. Aren't you glad He prayed that? Why? Why did He pray that? So that we'll enjoy the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and see our loved ones and not be sick again? If you listen to a lot of people, that's the extent of heaven to them. Yes, those things will be true, but that's not why Jesus prayed that we'd be with Him. Free. Which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I hope you're not going to be disappointed when that's the main thing in heaven. He prayed that prayer in order of time before he prayed the words of Matthew 26, 36. But now he files a request. And then he seems to withdraw it indecisively, kind of acquiescing, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now clearly the petition here in, in the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, especially that verse 24, that request was based upon the revealed will of God. The Father had told the Son in eternity past, as we read in that marvelous second psalm, ask of me. God says to the Son, ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Oh, how many godly missionaries down through the history of the church have prayed that same prayer and saw that they had a right to do so because they are in Christ. Jesus had already stated the Father's will about some areas. One such area was John chapter 6, verse 39. And, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. Speaking of his own, his own disciples, those who would believe on him through the word, as he mentioned in another place in the high priestly prayer. By the way, this is one reason why it's so important to know the word of God. If you want to get regular answers to prayer, you're going to have to have some warrant for praying from the Bible. So Jesus said, if ye, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Staggering implications. Now let's face it, for some matters we just have no promise, we have no precept, we have no precedent. Yes, there are thousands of promises in the Word of God. Thank God for them. Somebody's tried to count them, in, but the, even the estimates vary from sincere scholarly people. Thousands of precious promises in God's Word, but they still don't address every specific situation. And it's dangerous to just pull a Scripture out of the hat and apply it to a given dilemma. We laugh about that sometimes, but be careful. If you just let your Bible fall open any, anywhere and take that as God's will for your life, you'll be like the fellow that fell open and it said, and Judas went out, committed suicide, went to his own place. He said, I don't like that one. So he closed his Bible again and then he opened it again. And it said, go thou and do thou likewise. And we laugh, but that's about how foolish it is. You just take God's word at random. 
When Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Are you listening? He was praying about a matter concerning which he did not, as a man, know the Father's will. Otherwise, he would not have inserted that word if. And let's be reverent here and very careful, but in we see a similar thing in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, where Jesus said that no man, including the Son and not even the angels in heaven, know the day nor the hour when Jesus would come again. That, I don't think that's still the case, but it was then. I believe the glorified man knows. But he didn't then. He chose not to know. In some instances, the perfect Son did not know God's will about certain matters. How much more are we? How much more are we in the dark? And this is the reason that the Holy Spirit, one of the reasons, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, Romans 8 verse 28, or 26, I'm sorry. We all know Romans 8, 28, that's the most familiar verse in the whole chapter, and a wonderful verse. But in verse 26, likewise the Spirit also, the Holy Spirit, helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. We have to say amen, every one of us today. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself, the Spirit Himself, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And as Spurgeon said, those groanings which cannot be uttered are prayers that cannot be refused. Now, if we have a promise, we should plead it in prayer. Amen? If it applies. If it's directed to us, nothing less honors God. If we have a command, if we have a, a precept, we, we better obey it. No need to pray about that. Somebody ever gets up from my office and says, well, I'm going to go pray about this matter of baptism. I say, don't waste your breath. It's a command. If you're saved, you need to be baptized. You don't pray about tithing. It's a command. You don't pray about whether you should assemble yourself together in church. It's a command. You don't pray about whether you should marry an unbeliever who's really a nice guy and a real gentleman, but he's not saved. No, the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together. It's amazing how our minds can rationalize things. We don't need to pray about a precept. Secondly, it is presumption to claim to know God's will when we have no warrant for faith. There are some situations about which we don't have a specific promise, precept. It is presumption to claim to know God's will when we have no warrant for faith. There's a dramatic illustration of this in the Old Testament. I won't have you turn there. For the sake of time, I'll just summarize it. It's found in Numbers chapter 14, verses 40 through 44. Here's the, here's the story. God had just executed a plague upon the ten spies, the faithless spies who went with Caleb and Joshua to spy out the land of Canaan. The ten spies had come back with a majority report, but an unfavorable negative report. And God judged all Israel for their sakes and caused Israel to wander for 40 unnecessary years in the wilderness, at least 38 more at this point. Nevertheless, here's the, here's the story here. Some of the children of Israel would not take no for an answer. And they got up early the next morning and made a foray against the enemy anyway. And here's what it says in verse 44 of Numbers chapter 14. But they presumed to go up into the hilltop. 
Nevertheless, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God, and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill, and smote them, and discomfited them. They drove them back, even unto Hormah. What was the problem? Are you listening? These people had no command from the Lord or from the Lord's man. They presumed that God's earlier promise made to Joshua was still valid, even though they had forfeited the right to that promise because of their unbelief. And I say to you, we can be guilty of the same thing. When we try to give people false hopes and take verses out of context in a subjective way, it can be cruel sometimes. Somebody wants to be an encouragement to somebody who's been given a, a terminal sentence, terminal illness. And so irresistible to just take that promise found in John 11 and say, oh, this sickness is not unto death. How do you know? It can be awful cruel. There was an elderly couple across the street from our church in the Cayman Islands. Sweet story. They, they married later in life. A widow married a widower. And... Um, even though they went to another Baptist church on the island that they've been involved in for a long time, they were overjoyed to find a Baptist church going up across the street from them. And then after we got the building finished, which they helped with, by the way, liberally, uh, the gentleman would come and pray with our men before the service. Then he'd go to his church. <laughs> that was real sweet. And then he died. I was already here. I'd already come to friendship. And I, I went back for the funeral. They asked me to help. And I talked with his widow, Miss Golterman, and she said, Brother Bob, Pastor Bob, I think she called me. She said, I, I didn't think God was going to do this. She said, I had these Christian businessmen, these were charismatic men, that came and gathered around Melgy's bed, and they just agreed. And one said, do you agree, brother, God's going to raise Melgy up? Do you agree, brother? Do you agree, brother? Do you agree? Okay. We all agree, and so we claim this promise that if we agree in prayer, it shall be unto us as we wish. She said, I thought God was going to heal my husband. But he didn't. That kind of stuff is not only mistaken, it's cruel. Let's be careful we don't presume to know God's will when we have no warrant for faith. By the way, it wasn't the worst thing in the world for Mel G to be graduated to heaven. We spend more time trying to keep people out of heaven than we do out of hell sometimes. I want you to notice with me, secondly, the prayer of submission is consistent with the prayer of faith. Here, once again, we're treading on holy ground. Let's ask the Lord for a sanctified understanding and a submissive will. On the surface, there seems to be two requests here, and they seem paradoxical. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. And if it may not pass, thy will be done. And that seems to be contrasting with the thought that Jesus gave in John 17, 24. Father, I will. In Matthew 26, not as I will. In John 17, 24, Father, I will. I want to talk about both of those for a moment. 
And I know we're going down deep for a Sunday morning. I don't apologize for that. How many of you want to just have your ears tickled and entertained when you come to church? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good. You're in the right place. Christ's words, not as I will, kept his prayer from being sinful. In verse 39, and he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He conditioned his prayer on those words. Now, remember, he had just given expression to the deep anguish of his soul that he might be spared the awful cup. Let this cup pass from me. He did that three times with pauses in between. And three times he adds the modifier, not what I will. He had asked for something about which he could not say, I know it is thy will, even though he was the Son of Man, he was God in the flesh. But in his humanity, he could not say, I know it is thy will. He had pleaded God's power and love with that endearing term of address, Abba, O Father, O my Father, that tender Aramaic term equivalent to our word Daddy. Listen carefully. The prayer that the cup should pass away could not be answered. It was not answered. But the prayer of submission that God's will be done was heard. And gloriously answered in his victory first over fear and then over the power of death. As we read in Hebrews 5, 8, and we'll see this in a moment, he was heard in that he feared. God did hear his son's prayer in the garden. Now here's what I have for us today. If the sinless son of God added a P.S., his earnest prayer in the crisis hour of his life and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine, how much more should we? Please don't let the charismatics take this away from you. Let's make sure, and I'm serious as a heart attack about this, let's make sure that with God we don't insist on anything too much. Rationalizing that we're exercising faith that it can be said of us as it was with the wilderness, with the Israelites in the wilderness in Psalm 106, verse 15. This is a key verse. Jot that down. Psalm 106, verse 15. Referring to the Israelites in the wilderness, when they craved for meat, they craved for quail meat. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. Remember reading that? God answered their prayer, but they wished He hadn't. Their pampered bodies were gorged with food, but their souls were starved. It wasn't long after that that an angry God smote them with an awful plague, and they were buried in the graves of lust, Kibroth Hatava. Don't push anything too hard with God unless it is revealed to be His will, and are you listening? You are willing to sacrifice all for His glory, as in the salvation of souls. You're not acting out of lust or self-will. Secondly, the sacrifice of Christ's will in Gethsemane was the secret to the sacrifice of His life on the cross of Calvary. 
the sacrifice of his will in Gethsemane. That's where the crisis was passed. And I mentioned that companion passage we read from at the beginning of the service. Would you look at it once again? Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Well, let's start at verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, he was heard, though he were a son, that's subjunctive, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. He was made perfect. Let's be careful here. This touches on the mystery of Christ's dual nature. We often talk about that. And here is his kenosis, his act of emptying himself, as the hymn writer said, Charles Wesley, emptying himself of all but God. And it was in this denial of his own will that Christ's obedience reached his highest perfection. It was in his prayer, Father, not as I will that he obtained the power to pray later, though he had already prayed it, but spiritually it would come later, to pray, Father, I will. Please don't miss this. This is so important. Yes, in order of time, the prayer of John 17, 24, that we've been talking about, In order of time, it preceded his agony in the garden, but this was only by anticipation. It was from the entire surrender of Christ's will in Gethsemane that he is our high priest upon the throne, now has the power to ask what he will and the right to make his people share in that power also. Thus we can say without any hesitation, It was from the sacrifice of his will in Gethsemane that Jesus received the power and the strength to sacrifice his life on Calvary. Yes, he was weak. He was so weak in the garden that he could not even stand. The Bible said he fell on his face and he was strengthened by an angel. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke does. Isn't it interesting he was strengthened by an angel when he was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his journey, of of his ministry? Have you ever let your sanctified imagination run as to how the angel might have strengthened him? I don't think it's wrong to do that. The Bible doesn't say. How do you think that angel strengthened Jesus? Was it something he said? Remember how Moses and Elijah strengthened Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as they talked about his approaching decease at Jerusalem? Do you think that angel whispered some promise? Did he portray the the coming scene of an angelic entourage bearing him on his chariot to his throne in heaven? Was it something the angel said or was it something that he did? Well, we don't know, but one thing I want to find out when I get to heaven is that very matter. Let's review the deep mystery of what transpired that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're on holy ground. If you're bored, something's wrong with you. I'll be honest. This is holy ground. The Father offers His beloved Son the cup, the cup of His wrath for sin. The Son, always obedient, shrinks back, imploring that He not have to drink it and asking if there could be an alternative, some other way to avoid this horror. 
The father doesn't grant his request. The father still holds out the cup. And finally the son yields up his will, content that his will be not done, and goes out to Calvary and embraces that cup with both hands and drinks it to the bottom. That's what happened here. And if you understand a little bit of that, you'll be adoring and wondering and worshiping the Son of God. In imitating our Savior and Advocate, shouldn't we learn to pray? Shouldn't we go away but better prayer warriors today? We don't sing this song. I don't even know what the tune is for it, but I love the words. I hope one day we will learn it. Goes like this Go to dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away. Learn from Jesus Christ to pray. That's so good. So important what transpired in that garden. I quickly say, because I know we got to take the Lord's table together. As our high priest, Jesus secures for us the very opposite of what he suffered. And this is in harmony with the whole tenor of the marvelous plan of redemption. We just have to stand in awe as we think about these things, but we ought to meditate upon them often. Jesus died that we might live. Jesus cried, I thirst, that we might have the living water of the Holy Spirit, that artesian well within, and never thirst again. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He bore God's curse, that we might inherit God's blessing. He was a man of sorrows, that our joy might be full. He was separated and lonely, that we might be enfolded into the Father's arms forever. He prayed, not as I will, that He might be able to say to us, if you abide in me, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. He suffered the burden of unanswered prayer. The Father was silent, but so that we might pray what we will, and it will be answered us. Yes, the Father was silent. On other occasions, His voice came audibly from heaven when Jesus prayed. When Jesus asked Him to glorify Himself, He his name, he said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again, but this time no answer. No answer. Thank God the last Adam was willing to come to pay the price to undo the tragic willful sin of the first Adam. His suffering was not in vain. I hope we love him more this morning, otherwise this message is in vain. I close with this thought and then we'll get on with the observance. This mind needs to be in us which was in Christ Jesus. And only the Holy Spirit can enable that self-denial. You can't do it yourself. You can't grit your teeth and be a stoic and do it. That's not how Jesus did it. We're not talking about an iron man who went through Spartan training so that he can endure what he endured in the garden. No, he was tempted in all points. That means in every area such as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was not Teflon-coated. Jesus was not numb. Jesus was not anesthetized. He felt every pang more deeply than you and I do.
But it was through the Spirit that he offered himself without spot to God. The eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9 verse 14. At his baptism God gave the Spirit without measure unto him. We're all leaky vessels, amen. We need to be filled again and again and again. And through the Spirit we need to mortify or put to death the deeds of the body and we shall live what we need more than anything in light of what we've just heard is the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and makes us partakers of the same obedience that Jesus worked in. Jesus worked. It's the Holy Spirit who teaches us to yield up our will entirely to the will of the Father. It's the Holy Spirit who renews and quickens us. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us feel our sonship so that we can cry like Jesus Abba, Father. I'll say it again. I'm not trying to be trite. It's better felt than tell. There's some people who can get, spout out the doctrine. Oh, they know the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but they don't experience it. And I remind you, He is the Spirit of the risen, ascended, exalted Savior, sent from the throne to enable us to do those greater works that Jesus promised in John 14, verse 12, the works that we would do when he went back to the Father. And so I ask you as we come to a close today, before we partake of the elements of the Lord's table, have you prayed for the Holy Spirit in that sense? And some of you are shocked for me even to use language like that. You'll get over it if you come hear me enough. Luke eleven thirteen 13 is for us, folks. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? What are you going to do with that? I'm not trying to be smart. That's not written to unsaved people. That's written to disciples. Yes, we do need more of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which we receive all of them at salvation, but we need Him more in His gifts. We need Him more in His manifestations. We need Him more in His empowerment. How much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? He who enables us to know Christ in the free pardon of sin will enable us to know Him in the power of His resurrection, and He will sustain us in the fellowship of His sufferings. Those two go together. Failure to understand and appropriate that is why we're seeing so many shocking casualties and deconversions in our day. Are you as shocked as I am? Almost every week, at least every month, somebody else is deconverting their faith that we thought better of. It's a pandemic far worse than COVID, and it's only begun, and you're only going to see it some more. We better make sure we have the Spirit. Somehow Jesus Christ was on the verge of distraction in the garden. You say, what do you mean by that? I promised you I'd tell you what that word heavy meant. He began to be heavy. This blessed my heart. It may not do anything for you. I was reading Spurgeon, and Spurgeon said that the word heavy means to be distracted. Here's the picture. Jesus was thinking of you. Jesus was thinking of me in his anguish in the garden. Instead of being distracted by his pain, he was distracted from his pain. 
to think of you and to think of me. And he carried through on the cross as we read what happened on the cross in Isaiah 13, that he saw his seed from the cross. He saw the reward of his suffering in the fact that you and I are reconciled to God by, the, by his own death. I hope you never sing that verse we sang again earlier in the service the same way. For me it was in the garden. He prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own grief but sweat drops of blood for mine. He denied his own will that he might be able to will for me to be with him to behold his glory forever in heaven. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, bind us to the sacrifice on the altar with cords which cannot be broken, the cords of love. Forgive us for our apathy toward Jesus. So easy to come and hear a message like this and take of the Lord's Supper for the 500th time or more and not be any different when we leave. I pray that won't happen today. Thank you that Jesus no longer needs our sympathy, but he does want us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. I pray you'll melt our hearts by his great love. And even now as we partake of this ordinance that he has given to us, would you sanctify it to our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.